The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to a summer reissue of The Fold. This is probably the, the sort of signature episode of the year. Sinead Boucher, out the back of her purchase of stuff for a dollar, explaining how it all went down, what her intentions are, and just generally kind of in the immediate aftermath of what is probably the media coup of the decade. My thanks to Vodafone for making The Fold possible. Uh, I hope you like it. Kia ora and welcome to The Fold for June of 2020. Uh, this, I'm your host, Duncan Grieve, and this is a podcast about uh, the media in New Zealand. Um, it's, been, it's been a crazy, crazy few months. I mean, the, the industry is, is obviously in a, a constant state of flux, but you add COVID-19 to the mix and, and there's just you know the 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 motion within it is is just kind of hard to get your head around um because of the scale of the the virus and its impact on everything it meant that sort of storylines which might otherwise have had have have assumed a, a pretty huge and public level just got kind of lost along the way but the the resolution of the NZME staff saga um with you know, has been, I think, one of the the big signal um, moments of of this period of time, and the fact that it happened so fast, and and the way that it resolved, really tells you a lot about, uh, you know, the, this era and and the one that we're heading into from a media perspective. Um, so, to briefly re- recap what happened, uh, there were. NZME was was engaged in talks with with Nine to to buy stuff or, or to to be basically given permission to ask to be able to buy stuff because there were a, a few regulatory hurdles that needed to be passed um, to be able to do that. They somehow, and we've yet, yet to really receive a completely satisfactory answer on on how this this all went down, but uh, somehow NZME gained the impression that they were they able to get regulatory approval then they would be given then they would be able to buy stuff for a dollar while at the same time stuff had uh, basically assumed that that sorry nine had assumed that the talks had broken down so that culminated in the extraordinary scenes um, of that Monday in early May when uh, entered me told the New Zealand Stock Exchange that they intended to purchase stuff for a dollar stuff very rapidly followed up with a release of their own saying that talks had broken down and there was no longer a live conversation there there was a court battle and you know there was very there, there was talk of another acquirer there was speculation about about TVNZ about Sky and then 
on a uh, Monday morning, exactly two weeks after the original NZME announcement, uh, Staff CEO Sinead Boucher announced that the previous evening she had in fact uh, bought stuff for for a dollar, and yeah, that concluded this this sort of long running courtship between the two companies, which had lasted years and brought with it a a whole bunch of of questions about both about the process itself and and about where stuff is heading. Um, I have already interviewed uh, Sinead on the fold. She was, in fact, the guest on the very first episode of it. She she rejoins us now and basically talks us through in real time both the, the deal itself and the last sort of six, eight weeks for, you know, for her running a media company, which went, you know, both had, you know, stuff is still New Zealand's biggest employer of journalists and thus essentially had the, the biggest role in, in covering the COVID-19 era. She talks about what it was like to do that under level four, where, the, where on one side you had almost all of your advertising revenue drop away. On another, you had the biggest ever um, online audiences for your work. Uh, you had your your journalists in, in the gallery basically becoming almost public figures for a period of time. You had the collapse of Bauer. We discuss all of that uh, in this interview conducted late last week via Zoom. Uh, and I think for anyone who has followed this, the, the both the NZME stuff saga and, and sort of been paying attention to what's happening in, in media over the past sort of months and years, I think it's a pretty illuminating discussion. So here it is, uh, Sinead Boucher on The Fold. Kia ora, Sinead. Thank you so much for, for joining me here after about 20 minutes of very strange technical <laughs> snafus that are endemic to, to the Zoom era. Um, I basically just want us to get straight into it. I'm like ravenous to, to hear about how this, this all went down because we last, I, you were the first guest on this podcast six months ago. You were the CEO of Stuff. Six months later, you're still the CEO. You're also now its owner. Um, <laughs> tell me about how that process when it first began and how fast it moved yeah I mean it's uh what's the date today we're sort of mid-June and so it's really only just over a month ago that it it all began um although this last month has felt like six months itself so it was probably um sort of the second about the second week of May um and you know as you know we've been going through this sort of ongoing second round of an attempted merger or um, sale to NZME, the stuff business. Nine, our Australian owner had been very clear from um, day one of acquiring Fairfax Media in Australia that it didn't want to own a New Zealand business. And we've really been up for sale for the sort of year or or more um, since then, uh, year and a half actually. So we'd... um, gone through various sort of sale processes and then this second um, round attempt with NZME. And Hugh Marks, who was the CEO of um, Nine, rang me up um, and basically said, look, you know, I I don't think this is going to happen, this merger. Um, We, Nine, um, really want to just be wrapped up with the New Zealand business. It's, um, It's a distraction for us. It's not something that's core to us. And I just can't see this going anywhere. And I can't see the business, the nine business order, committing to stuff long term. 
And so I, you know, I got off the phone to him and you know, I felt really, sort of really gutted for the company and the staff um, after so long of being in the sort of process of, of um, or being in a state of limbo really about ownership with an owner who didn't want to own us and you know didn't want to invest in us or do anything with us in the meantime and this you know process with NZME which it seemed like their only real um, real alternative um, to nine ownership uh, was just seemed to be going nowhere so I had a chat with um, my husband um, and um, Ramesh um, Vedalacharam who's our CFO at Stuff and you know, I think we were all kind of of the view that if NZME is not going to go anywhere and the ultimate um, end goal doesn't look very good for the stuff business from, you know, Nine's point of view, I will, you know, I'd ring back and make an offer to do an MBO, which I did. So I rang, I rang Hugh back and, and basically said exactly that, that if he didn't feel NZME was going to play out, um, then I would step in and offer a dollar for the business just to take it off Nine's hands, um, and he said, yes, let's do that, so, and then that just sort of kicked off this incredibly intense couple of weeks of yeah, work. so, <laughs> totally, um, and was, where, where was that in relation to that, because there was this amazing scene on the Monday where, uh, you know, when... Uh, Michael Boggs and, and NZME announced a sort of their intention to, to seek permission to buy it for a dollar seemingly with you know the, the way it came out it felt like they, they knew they, they had it or that you know it doesn't seem like the kind of thing you do without the, yeah. like, <laughs> the uh, permission of or the endorsement of its owner and then very quickly that unraveled so where was the, this conversation so- in relation to that, and how did that sort of feel? Like, how blindsided were you by that announcement? Oh, well, the, firstly, the um, the conversation I had with Hugh was um, maybe just under a week before that came out. So as far as I knew, you know, everything was just sort of, you know, that they'd had whatever conversation they needed to have with NZME, um, and we were just sort of progressing on. So when that came out on the Monday, I was really blindsided, Um and surprised, and um, it you know there's a very quick phone calls um, with Nine, and it became clear that they were very surprised by that move as well, um, because as far as they were concerned, there was there was no negotiations ongoing between those two companies or any deal to be done there at all, um, and um, so that day itself was a bit, is this on? Is it not on? Or what? You know, um, it it was an extraordinary day actually, um, uh, and an extraordinary uh, you know statement. Um, but you know, we just sort of stayed the course and kept going. Um, nine nine said to me, "Look, you know, as far as we're concerned, we're negotiating with you, and we really want to get the this done. So let's go." <laughs> it's, it's such an extraordinary thing, so back and because there has been so much news lately which we'll, we'll sort of get to late, later but it sort of has got it just got lost in the torrent but as an episode if you just shrink it down to a New Zealand media history it is it's quite an amazing one because it it didn't just end with that day obviously there were, there were court proceedings 
that that um, came out subsequently, which you know ultimately didn't derail it. But you know, how how did you feel sort of emotionally through that? Because uh, it it must have been it's a huge thing to consider acquiring the business, but it's also to have that you know going on in parallel is almost unimaginable. It was. Um, I mean, because even though on one level this was a um, you know, uh, it, it might have been acquiring a business for a dollar, but it was still felt like a massive undertaking to me. And, you know, I suddenly plunged into this world of, you know, um, corporate negotiations and, and deals in a way that I'd never had done before. But on the other side, um, so I was a, the buyer that Nine was talking to, but it was confidential. Um, Within our own organisation, our staff were really worried about what this all meant, this NZME announcement and the NZX announcement. And, um, you know, uh, the sort of sense that was sort of swirling around at the time, um, quite correctly, I think, that Nine was not prepared to commit to the business long term. I mean, they've always been pretty upfront about their intentions to us. And so you can imagine how unsettling that was for our staff and also, I was very limited in what I could tell people so or, or say to people or give them any kind of reassurance. So um, we'd got come through the weeks before, you know, during lockdown and such, doing, you know, um, multiple video town halls a week with our staff, just keeping them up to date with where things are going, what's happening to the company, you know, um, how we're sort of navigating through. And then it sort of got to this point where actually there was something really big happening out there externally that uh, involved stuff, and I couldn't talk to people about it or give them any honest or transparent answer about what was happening. And I found actually that one of the tough that was the toughest thing for that week because I felt um, uh, that that was the time when people really needed to hear from the CEO about what was going on, and I was. Yeah, I had my hands tied completely about saying anything either way, um, both because there was a court action looming, but also because I knew there was this buyer there, but that was me. <laughs> and I was bound by confidentiality around that process as well. I mean, and, and you know, talking about the staff like that, I, I so see that because it's easy now that we're in level one, though. <laughs> you know, if, if we keep watching quarantine, who knows how long that'll last. But, the, you know, li life feels much more normal. But during that time, I mean, we, we had come out of lockdown or we were starting to come out of lockdown, I think. But the the whole, you know, with the collapse of Bauer, the redundancies at NZME and MediaWorks, there was just a the sense of danger of, of, of you know, like that, that was in the air for media was so palpable. Uh, you know, how, how did that sort of, how did that feel in the room and, and how did those kind of uh, broader industrial forces kind of um, impact on, on, on the, the deal and on the sort of, the, the way it uh, unfolded? Yeah, I mean, look, it was, a it was a very real, not just a very real sense of danger, but actually a very real danger um, you know, the um, collapse of Bauer, I think, you know, on one level, 
you know, it hadn't been a surprise that Bao wanted to exit New Zealand, but on another, it was just utterly shocking that all of a sudden on a day, all these incredible titles and the history there um, uh, were gone, um, you know, and, and still unsure exactly what might happen to some of those. But so there was that, there was the, you know, the various job cuts that were going around. And as a business, we ourselves, you know, roughly half our revenue came from advertising and as soon as sort of, you know, or actually even before lockdown was announced, um, we had started to see a really serious impact on that. And once we went into lockdown, it basically disappeared. Um, not surprisingly, since everything shut up shop. So that period was a real danger zone for us where we knew on one hand we had an owner who wasn't committed and wouldn't necessarily, we, we couldn't, um, we didn't feel we could rely on their support should we be in a position to need a cash injection or anything like that. Um, and on the other, we could just see this sort of, you know, turbulence out there in the, in the wider market. So, you know, we were really hunkering down, managing every day, the cash flow, the sort of um, sense of worry with staff, trying to be as open about that um, as we could with people. Um, and, you know, asking for things like our staff to take a pay cut, um, which was a really big step and, um, and, and incredible the response to that and the sort of support back from people. Um, so when it came to that, you know, this is all the build up to that week where um, made the decision to offer for the MBO. And it was definitely a factor, you know, this feeling that if I don't do something, then the whole business could just go. Um, because we have an owner who, um, who doesn't want to have a New Zealand interest and there's no really you know, obvious um, other alternative out there. And now is probably not the best time to find one either. So um, in, in some ways that gave me real, um, I guess, the, the confidence in a way to do it um, because it felt like it was going to be the best option for the people who work there and, and the health of the company. Um, so I still really very strongly believed in stuff as a business and the assets it had and the power of the journalism and the, and the newspapers as well as the digital assets. And coming into COVID, we had been um, tracking along really well. Um, we basically matched our financial results to the previous year, which is the first time in a long time. And I knew that we were um, had, still had a, a good business under there once we came out of COVID. So, um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible few weeks, actually, of that sort of turbulence and uncertainty and big things happening um, that just seemed to lead on to other big things <laughs> happening every day, every week, you know. So, With the, yeah, absolutely. And with that, with that sort of that, that really dark period, I mean, firstly, what was what was your reaction when Bauer collapsed, and and secondly, you know how how close to the wall, how close did the wall feel? Because I remember talking to you once during lockdown, and I think there was like four paid ads in, in yeah. the whole Sunday Star Times, and there, you know, like that that must have been, you know, with hindsight, you look back and and the curve went down all this, but we didn't know any of that at the time. It looked like that could have lasted three months. I mean, around the world, it essentially does continue, you know, in, in some variation of that. So 
you know, even the, the prospect of, of acquiring it, yeah, like to, just sort of wrap up the, the darkest moments of that for, yeah. for us. And I think, um, you know, Bauer was obviously um, a huge, you know, it just sense these seismic waves around our industry here in New Zealand and Australia too, um, I know, as the sort of first... And at that time, I guess there was a sense of, is it just the first of um, big casualty of um, what there'd been, a, you know, a, in, in media um, reporting, been a lot of description of COVID as an extinction level event for news. And um, so there's a lot of fear and worry about that. And I think for us, it, you know, even though pre-COVID we were, we were tracking along okay, Everything changed during those weeks, and it felt like anything could happen within a matter of days. Um, so, you know, we were, you know, I, I, I really, during that time, felt like instead of having my CEO hat on, I had my director hat on as a director of staff and was um, making sure that I was, um, and taking advice, external advice too, on you know, navigating through a situation where we had to really watch cash flow, sure we could pay wages and sure we could pay our bills, etc. And when you actually couldn't really look ahead very far, you couldn't, you know, no one knew what was going to happen in a, in a fortnight, let alone how you track over months. Um, and I think during that time, the advice that I got um, uh, from various external, um, you know, legal help and, um, and others was absolutely critical to trying to navigate through what felt like a you know a, a very precarious time, not just because of the impact on our business from advertising closure, but because I didn't feel certain what our parent would do with us during that time or what support or not we might be able to to do. I think one thing that um, turned out to be a real advantage for us was um, Sometime, quite a long time before COVID, we um, had made the decision to sell off our um, ventures, so Stuff Fibre and Energy Club, and look to do some new things, you know, to reinvest the money in new things. And that sale, which came during um, that lockdown time, um, even though it had been many months in the in the making, was you know it was great to be able to get that cash into the business and have it there in case we needed it. And as it turned out, we were able to navigate through those worst of those weeks just on our own resources and um, acting carefully. Um, but it's um... sorry, Doug. <laughs> the dog. I, do, I should say you, you can't see this if you're listening, but Sinead's golden retriever has got what looks like a small crocodile in his mouth. It, it, it actually is a small stuffed crocodile that she's she's dug up from somewhere. Our children have grown past small toys now, but every now and again, the dog seems to find one somewhere in the house <laughs> and appears with it. <laughs> really stoked with it. Good with one. It. Um, <laughs> Sorry about yeah. that audio bomb of the of the dog. Um, so, you know, so it was. It felt very. Um, every day felt like you were walking on a knife edge, and you weren't really sure what might come by the end of the day, and. And I, but I think when it came to the point of doing MBO, in some ways it made it easier because it was just another big thing to do after a few weeks of lots of really big things happening and 
you know, big decisions to be made and navigated through. How do you feel now about nine? Like, it must be such a strange thing to be owned for so long by someone who is so profoundly and publicly disinterested <laughs> in owning you with all that the hamstringing that goes on along with that. And, and yet, ultimately, I feel like, because there were other people around, and Todd Scott was, was out there kind of publicly campaigning for, you know, for months, if not years, and, and, and there would have been other interested parties who probably would have paid more than a dollar. But it feels like after all the kind of quite, you know, at, at times sort of unpleasantness of it, that they ultimately made what is a, a very uh, public-spirited move in, um, uh, you know, selling it to, to management and to the, probably the best possible acquirer. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think I feel very grateful to Nine um, for that exactly. Um, and actually there had been, during the course of us being up for sale, there had been um, serious approaches um, and in some cases offers from various groups where, what, you know, part of the factor was, you know, eventually Nine saying, actually, we don't think this is a good owner for the New Zealand business. Um, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, they wanted out. That wasn't that was their primary, you know, um, motivation. And I think the other thing was, I actually really respected the fact that they were very nothing but honest about their intentions for us from day one, and never tried to um, sugarcoat anything or um, pretend their interest was anything but you know um, selling us on. Um, which just took away one more layer of trying to say second guess what might be really heard or, or whatever. And when um, when the sale, you know, when it came up and then once it got through, I received lots of really great messages from people throughout that business and wishing us well. And including a lot of the people there who worked for our former owner, Fairfax Media, who, you know, was absorbed by nine. Um, so, you know, I, I still feel there's a good, we have a good relationship with them there. But I do ultimately think that, um, you know, it, we didn't belong with them and they felt it and we felt it. And, um, you know, we're much better to have our, our destiny in our own hands now and be able to make, make decisions that we think are not only right for our business, but that feel right in the context of the New Zealand news landscape and the... Um, you know, the expectations of um, our customers and readers here rather than something that might have been more from a nine, you know, Australian TV business, um, which was not, you know, we weren't very similar businesses when it came came down to it. Um, I want to get to the, the sort of the future and the, the strategy and some of the opportunity and tension that exists there, but just... They're, 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 we've been talking about the business um, so far, but but the business is one of journalism, and I'd, I'd love to touch on how journalism was changed and challenged and, and during lockdown, because uh, you know I, I don't think it's a particularly controversial thing to suggest that there was a lot of very very good and very important journalism practice during there, but the there was such a palpable antipathy towards particularly the gallery and stuff has probably on balance the best and, and biggest gallery team in the country. How, we, how sort of, 
aware of that and and, and you know how, how did that feel for you know sort of watching and, and mm. that all unfolds um, during during that period so I think you know the thing is that while as a business we were entering this period of incredible challenge where the sort of the commercial side of the business and the and the um, money that funded journalism was just gone. Um, on the other side, we have never had more demand for the journalism, and you know, on stuff which was already, um, you know, regularly doing maybe one point two million visitors a day to the website, that doubled overnight once lockdown was um, announced and stayed at those kind of highs for you know. Um, quite a while it's come off that now obviously but it's still much higher than it was you know beforehand and um, so on one hand you know business is, re- is even more challenged but the journalism is even more in demand and needed you know it was really needed um, when you still had lots of things swirling around about you know 5g causing coronavirus and all sorts of things that that Good journalism was needed more than ever, but what was what was really interesting to me, um, I I felt that the across the um, all the companies that New Zealand was really well served by journalism during that time, um, but I was really shocked at the way that the public reacted to the journalists during that time, um, particularly those gallery journalists. Um, because obviously we were going through, you know, having these daily press conferences, very visible, um, you know, prime ministers, you know, speaking to the nation, but also to the press gallery, and the journalists asking questions, hard questions, sometimes questions that seemed maybe to the someone at home that they were stupid or disrespectful or whatever. And we just started to get all these emails and messages and social kind of messages in about you know how dare those journalists be so disrespectful and question the prime minister they should be supporting what they're doing now and you know they're just um, a pack of idiots they shouldn't be behaving like that and you know whether or not you supported what the government was doing was completely immaterial because this was exactly the time when you need journalists to be questioning power about the big decisions that was making for us um, and seemed to be this real backlash against that kind of work. You know, rather than just carrying the message through, the government message, the sense that if you're questioning it or bringing in alternative voices, that that was a bad thing to do. Um, so that really struck me, and I know there were particular journalists, not specifically in our team, who um, really came in for a lot of personal attack during that time, for effectively doing what their job is to do on behalf of everybody. I, I, yeah, I, mean, I, thought... <laughs> I was going to say, I do feel those poor gallery journalists now, they've had the most intense weeks of their lives and we're just about to enter an election campaign, so there shall be no rest <laughs> for them. I know, I know. I thought uh, Kelly Dennett's profile of Toba during that period captured the moment and the mood and I think you know it's, it was an important thing to have yeah. almost for the historical record because it'll be lost it, that's a, right and, as a thing that happened and Tova is, is the is the person who came under the most attack and still is you know for doing her job um during that time and she sort of became almost like the poster girl for um evil journalists trying to um ask bad questions um and so I found myself just with um, 
family and friends and things and Zoom calls, having to sort of explain why journalists sometimes ask the questions they do and that there's usually there could be some context behind that that's not immediately um, apparent um, in ways I've never had to do ever uh, during their career. No, it's so, it's so strange. It was almost felt like the the fundamental underpinnings or like what the functional journalism was got got lost or, or, or you know in the tension of the moment um but it's it's been quite interesting this week i feel like both because the opposition had the same thing you know that the, whenever they would ask like it's literally the clue is in the name the opposition yeah. has a particular role in a democracy and both journalists and the opposition were certainly the least popular figures never never really high up there no. but, but even <laughs> we even didn't have far to fall <laughs> no but it felt like a long way yeah. still um but this week you know you see why those um institutions exist and then the that's value right. of them when, because those failings are just not they're not going to be press released that's right um and i, and I so, know i know June, the the other thing that was sort of frustrating for journalists during that time was the fact that everything became channeled through those press conferences daily so even their normal channels of being able to get information you know various statistics or things through um you know the dhbs or wherever it might be that the official line was everything will come through that time um and that's that's not it's never good that journalists can be denied information um but uh and while i can on one hand understand the sort of you know need the government to be very um strong and clear in what it wanted to do uh, when it comes to talking about the role of the fourth estate and the need to hold power to account that is exactly the moment that you need that to happen and you think about not just the the stories that have come out this week about the breach of quarantine and the sloppy practices that sort of exist but even during the um, lockdown the um, the stories about David Clark not following you know, their own rules. Those are all things that actually matter to be told. Um, uh, it's not the, it's not journalists' role to support um, or carry the message of the government of the day. It's their role to question and challenge and, um, you know, shine a light in the dark corners there to see what's really in <laughs> behind them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... Yeah, it was, it was a strange period, and thankfully it does seem to be uh, people are sort of re rediscovering the, the importance yeah. of it. Yeah, this week has been almost like a palate cleanser for that, yeah. which, is, which has been good. And I, and I do think, actually, that the sort of strange, you know, combination of lockdown, this massive, um, you know, change to the way we all had to live and work, and the the peril it kind of put journalism in, you know, financially at the same time it was needed more than ever, has actually helped people understand more about the importance of news media and the fact that it does need to be, you know, it does play a valuable role and it needs to be supported and funded. It can't be taken for granted. I mean, the Bauer um, collapse really showed people when those beloved titles like The Listener were gone, it, it I think it was a real eye-opener for a lot of people about things the industry had been talking about for many years, about that sort of challenges it faced. So I think that uh, when we did the change of ownership, with that came this incredible outpouring of public support, emails, messages, texts. 
I probably got, you know, maybe over 2,000 messages from around the country um, when after the sale was announced. Um, some, you know, readers or some advertisers and things, but actually just a lot of people who wanted to sort of say um, how much they valued their local newsroom and it was, you know, important to keep that work supported, etc., etc. And I think that might not have been the same, say, a year ago when we weren't just coming out of one of these, the sort of global crisis and the sort of need for people to find good information and reporting about it. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. I, I, I do want to talk about how the, the new ownership dynamically changes the reality for the business on, on multiple levels, but because I think that's that's fascinating, and and I think will be instructive about uh, how uh, the just how how it all um, develops, and basically, you know, it's a it's a bit of a bellwether of what the the future of the media and more, more sustainable and and forward looking uh, media environment looks like in New Zealand. But before we do, I I want to touch on what. Yeah, the, the the that government support package, which um, was was announced with some fanfare and was supposed to be the first of two, the second of which we're still waiting on. Uh, you know, because because as you say, like the, there's a reason that journalism was in a, designated an essential service. There was a reason that journalists had access to the the prime minister for you know an hour or more a day, um, and. And it you know, has been made very viscerally over the past couple of months the, uh, the the importance of journalism. But what what was your reaction when that that package came out? And do you feel like the you know, And what is your sense of of you know what what's holding it up or what the government's sort of longer term intentions are, having very clearly signalled something that so far isn't really arriving. So I think um, you know throughout. Um, or actually before and during the lockdown phase, there were several um, forums where the media industry was able to talk to government about the financial stress and challenge it was on. And particularly during lockdown, um, you know, at the Select Committee, the Pandemic Select Committee, um, about the sort of really grave peril a lot of reporting um, faced because the financial support that was already, uh, I guess, struggling, had just basically disappeared. And at the time, I felt that we got a really, I think we got a really good hearing. There were plenty of, plenty of opportunities to talk and to explain exactly and, well, and almost frankly. Almost too many opportunities to talk. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I got, I got sick of the sound of my own voice sometimes saying the same things. So when we heard there was going to be... Um, I think there was an acknowledgement that the crisis had brought an immediate cash flow situation for companies that could tip some of them over the edge. And we heard there was going to be this first media package that was aimed at um, at dealing with that immediate crisis that people were facing over days and weeks. Triage was the Triage. Word, the, it was the, the triage package. Yep. Around. You know, yep. stab first stabilize the patient. And so there was a $50 million package announced. And 
But it became very quickly clear to me that out of that $50 million, there was nothing in it for our company, and um, which maybe arguably needed that, ca- at that stage, needed that cash help the most um, to keep going. So I think 50 million, um, I can't remember the exact breakdowns, but 40 million of it was basically aimed at helping broadcasters and some radio with um, transmission savings and transmission fees and some New Zealand on air components. And there was about 10 or 11 million left that other companies, well, actually all companies could apply for um, in some way to help with their cash issue. And then later on, you know, I think I'm thinking it may have take, even taken a couple of weeks, it became clear that that was only going to be um, not an extra assistance, but a prepayment of government advertising for the sort of year ahead. And so I think we finally, we went, finally went through it. In fact, we still, we still haven't received anything from, from there, um, but we were able to apply to get the government to um, pay up front effectively what it would normally pay us across a year for its advertising. Um, and you put that in and then it got calculated against everybody else's request and, and divvied out. So you didn't necessarily get that much and we we didn't, we won't. You've got a proportion. And so for us, that's probably maybe just going to be in the nature of just over a million dollars, um, which um, the cash crisis is, is past now. We were thankfully able to get through, but it's certainly not something that would be um, uh, able to materially change, you know, the, the fortunes of our company. So I mean that's yeah. that's what's so strange, right? Like, because I, the, the the media is a is a big word. It can mean many different things in different contexts. But what we were talking about at the time, and certainly what the government appeared to be targeting, was journalism, which is a subset of media. And the biggest employer of journalists is, is staff. And you know the 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 fact that this package came out and it had almost nothing for you and yet some other companies which employ journalists and do, do great journalism but you know would employ maybe a quarter um, of that number were given you know like 10 15 million um, and ultimately this is a competitive environment you know for the hiring the compensating the you know like we we all you know most of us get on reasonably well but fundamentally like the you want it just to, everyone wants to be at the start line, run as hard as you can and, and under the same conditions. How did that sort of sit with you, the fact that some of your competitors were given just far larger um, contributions when certainly their cost base and what they actually do, the function they perform, isn't necessarily comparable? Yeah, look, and I probably, it wasn't so much that I begrudged others what they were getting because I knew we were all in um, trouble in one way or another or or challenged in one way or another. But um, but I just did feel deeply disappointed that um, after, you know, what I felt had been, a, you know, strongly conveying um, in multiple forums that, immediate peril a company like Stuff was in when you had an owner who was def- you know, openly not committing um, to supporting the company. 
and then for there to be nothing there um you know that that day I just felt so angry and disappointed and worried too because you know this wasn't about piling in some extra profits or anything for shareholders this is a matter of survival for um uh all of the the newsrooms and newspapers we have around the the country and we have 49 newspapers as well as stuff as well as neighborly and we do employ you know the biggest uh, you know newsroom across the country of journalists in, in New Zealand so um, it, it just, not only did I feel like that then, but it just added to the kind of worry about what was going to be ahead for our, our company. And I know that part of the reason that it sort of ended up distributed that way was because of the, um, you know, the government's worry about what was going to happen with stuff ownership and would they be putting in some money that might just get taken off to Australia and didn't really help things here. Um so, you know, I, th- I think we were very lucky we were able to still navigate through that time. It was just really the combination of our staff being able to take cuts. Um, we weren't, um, we really ramped back on anything um, extra. like all the, all the columnists. The columnists, and... you know, we had to let a lot of really good contributors and columnists go. Um, we had to stop putting as many pages in newspapers because newsprint itself is extremely expensive. Um, all those things. Um, so, you know, and the, and the government has been, um, has signalled that there is a, a bigger, um, more material package coming. And by bigger, that I think they mean in terms of its impact on a company like ours, which might be aimed to, you know, be more focused on supporting journalism as an industry and keeping that sort of essential service going rather than, um, you know, looking to help help one one company or another out of an immediate crisis so that didn't come in the budget um i when we were initially expecting it um we are still expecting that something will be announced within um you know weeks that's the sort of signals we've been getting but um you know the, the closer we get into election cycles and the more other things come on board and also to be honest the further away that crisis point that we all felt during lockdown seems, the, the more worried I am about whether that, you know, what actually impact that has on whether or not that eventuates. Mm, yeah, that's, that's sort of seems to me that it's, if it's not in the next few weeks, it just doesn't happen at all. Let's move on to something more um, exciting, which is the fact that you now own this business and, um, and can now sort of strategize and plan and uh, build build it out. Like, how does that feel, and, and what are you going to do? Um, it feels great, actually, um, because it's the, the first time ever in our history as a company, as a kind of collection of um, publications and sites, uh, that we have been in a position to where we've been um, able to make our own decisions you know, plot our own strategy, take risks, look for opportunities for ourselves rather than as part of a overseas um, or a big corporate owner. And that really changes um, the way you can look at things and how fast you can move, what decisions you make. So I, I, I've always, I've tried to stress to people a lot that even though I've bought the company, that hasn't changed any of the overarching dynamics that the news media face. It just gives us a different kind of chance to start to navigate our way through that and build a sustainable 
um, news media business. Um, but I feel um, much more optimistic about our ability to do that now that we have that in our own hands to sort of decide and deliver. Um, so firstly, you know, um, I, I, I took on the company, but um, I'd always intended uh, to transition that into a sort of, I guess, a more permanent ownership structure that would give um, our staff a stake in it, um, you know, allow the potential to bring in uh, other investors or partners should that be needed down the track. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I'm working through right now. It's far more complicated than I'd ever assumed. I thought it was just a simple thing to ask someone to put in, but there's sort of so many um, implications, legal and, uh, and tax and all sorts of things there. So, But I, I hope to get that done before too long. And and we're also going through this sort of, I guess, you know, I think the sort of next one, two, three months is really about stabilising, trying to um, land on what the... Um, the financial picture really looks like for our business um, when we're still in a, you know, we're coming out of lockdown, advertising is definitely coming back. How much of that is a honeymoon with things going back to work? What's the sort of things likely to land at? So we really want to sort of just be stable, rebuild um, for the next couple of months while we build out our, um, our longer term strategy. And we already had lots of ideas and plans around that, but some of which, um, we would never have got through a corporate owner, you know, in a, who, who view things in a, in a certain way and others which are really only possible because we've got the freedom to talk to different people, consider different things. Um, and I think, you know, the, the great thing that we have is that um, we have, I think, a huge amount of public trust in our, in our business. Um, sometime during the lockdown, you know, one of those Colmar Brunton um, annual surveys of the most trusted companies or the companies with the highest reputations came out and stuff had gone into that top 20. So um, we were thrilled about that. And and, uh, um, and people, I think, link us more closely now to the local news they get through their papers than they might have done in a Fairfax media days or a nine days. Um, so, you know, what we intend to do is, you know, we've, for, for a start, one thing we've already done is change all the um, our internal metrics and KPIs away from, you know, very straight audience financial ones to setting public trust as our key KPI and improvements in public trust as our as the um, I guess the key indicator that we want not only editorial but the whole business to sort of gear around because um, I think that's absolutely essential for a business like ours to to be able to grow and um, protect trust. And then um, out of that, that we have these platforms, Stuff and Neighbourly, which have massive scale. Um, you know, we're right us, you know, still the top domestic brand in the company in terms of audience and scale, engagement, um, you know, lots of engagement. And that, and yeah, I think... M- I view stuff in particular as a platform rather than just a publishing site. And when you think about a platform, you think about all the different sort of businesses or things you could build within that or off that, um, either ourselves or in partnership with other companies in New Zealand. And that's the direction that we'll be really going hard in in the next um, you know, one, two, three years. So, I mean, that that's true of stuff but 
and, and I, I think I wrote about this um, at some point dur- during that, that sort of period where it was acquired, but um, for, for stuff to function and for it to be a platform, you don't necessarily have to retain ownership of those 49 newspapers. Do, is that something that you've given thought to that, um, and that p- might be part of like returning them to, it, you know, it, almost like the, the same process as Nine did with, with you is that like a really interested community owner can, you know, like the, the town go back to owning its paper again for the first time in, you know, maybe a hundred years and then uh, forming a relationship with stuff in terms of the distribution of the content. Is that something that has That's, been you've given thought abs- to? Absolutely. And and some of the thought was in, um, had been in my mind well before the MBO. Um, Again, not something that we could ever have sort of done while the whole business was up for sale. But now, um, I mean, those news, you know, some of our newspapers are knocking on 160 years old. I think the day I announced the MBO, the press in Christchurch turned 159. Um, They're really important. Um, And the way that we are organised is that all of the journalists that work across the country... um, serve stuff with content and then also serve their local newspapers if they're in an area where that is. So when we think about future models, you know, that journalism is still utterly core to stuff the website um, and needs to be protected. And many of those print products are, I would consider core as well, but a lot of others would actually thrive much more in local hands and with local people. But but the model for that now, I think, is quite different than it would have been a few years ago where, um, again, there's probably more of a partnership to be done there um, to help support that um, through, you know, uh, whether it's production services or content or, you know, sales services, all the things that sort of are needed to um, help get a newspaper out. Um, and I think, you know, that is... That is definitely something that we once we get through this period of sort of stabilising, seeing where things are at, um, you'll be looking at some of those models there. Um, but our papers did really well during the lockdown too. Subscriptions went up, um, partly because people couldn't just walk down to their local dairy to pick up a copy. Um, but we have seen, um, even coming out of lockdown, an increase in those as well. They're still increasing. And that's, you know... It, it is what it is. It's not going to be the sort of new trend that emerges to sustain us for years. But I think it still comes back to the fact that people really, there is value there and people value those products as long as they're delivering something that um, adds to their their life and their community. Um, and I, I have had among the, um, the emails and things I've had from people who have been a lot of um, local publishers or people who might have been interested in becoming a local publisher, wanting to sort of um, ensure they could protect their local paper or potentially take it on themselves. Is there a tension between, you know, this this idea of uh, staff shareholding, um, which is a, a beautiful one, uh, and... and um, but where where you are making these sort of hard strategic decisions, whether it's redundancies or divestment of assets or reorganisations, which inevitably cause pain, even as they are often or nearly always essential to making a business, you know, stabilise and, and fit for the future. 
Do do you how how would you go? How do you kind of foresee managing the sort of need for a shareholder to be represented and able to have their voices heard, um, while also you know able to go about the sort of the hard business of managing and evolving a, a business at stuff scale? Yeah, you you absolutely you have to be able to separate. Um say, shareholdings or a sort of financial kind of stake from employment for a start. And I've tried to be very frank with people, again, that, you know, just because we've, we're uh, out of the woods in terms of ownership, or that's, you know, we've drawn a line under that, there's a, some still hugely difficult times to be navigated, and that will need to bring change and difficult decisions. You know, the one question... I always get answered first from staff, um, no matter what forum I'm talking in, is are there going to be more redundancies? And it's a question you can never say no to. You can never, you know, you have to be um, you're honest about the fact that we're going to have to keep going through a lot of change. So I think there are part of, I mean, I have been, I've worked for companies before where staff had um, a stake um, and there are various ways of doing that. And it was always very clearly divorced from the kind of decisions that had to be made for for the business. Um, so, you know, the way that we will set that up, we'll, we'll have to, um, you know, make sure that, that we can still do the things we need to do and not have people being able to, um, you know, I guess block something that they think might risk employment when actually if we don't do something, it could risk much bigger something much bigger than that um yeah um and we're already over over time so i'll I'll, uh, I'll let you go shortly but one thing um i just wanted to 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 ask was actually a bit um about facebook which i know that you know one of the things that we discussed in, in depth when i last had you on the fold was that sort of principled stand on, on not, um, you know, not uh, putting money into them. Uh, I just wondered if you'd, you'd seen the um, their latest, that, that sort of election type kind of transparency information and, and you know, have been following the, the sort of the Section 230 tensions that, you know, Twitter's tagging uh, Trump's tweets and so on. Do, do you feel like there is... Uh, a, a kind of a growing up happening with with social media and with with the big blue one um, in particular, or or does does your sort of that misgiving that kind of moral sense sort of uh, still 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 persist? Yeah, look, I think I'm probably look. I think it, it is great to see some of those initiatives come in, such as you know Twitter uh, marking fact, fact checking Donald Trump's tweets or um, or political ads having to be. Um, you know, have the transparency um, ruler run over them. But to me, they still feel like um, token, um, you know, PR things really, rather than something that's about fundamentally changing the core of a company or the operation there. And while you might you might have one thing going on uh, around politics, but on the other hand, 
you know, you still do have things like all the uh, stories swirling around about 5G causing coronavirus, which we've actually seen results in people getting out there and burning down the towers and, and, and things like that. So um, I'm very cynical about that. I think they're good initiatives on their own, but they, to me, not something that um, signals a real change in the way that a, a company operates. Do, do you think that there will be, or, or, or um, do, you know, in conversations with government or, or other people in business, do you think that there will ever be a sort of a sense that that sort of safe harbour section 230 published, but, but don't bear the consequences of, of the speech that happens on your platforms, which, as you say, everything from anti-vaccination, which is going to only get bigger as when the COVID vaccine arrives, to uh, to the 5G torturings, like it is exploding off the platforms and into lives in, in a more profound way than ever before. Do, do you sense that there might be a, a more of a desire to kind of place the, the responsibility for what happens on, on the platforms in, in a similar way to, to, to news publishers have, have always um, assumed? Yeah, look, I, I haven't picked up any real drive to get that changed coming from the government or anyone else here. Um, it doesn't feel like something that's got a lot of life or momentum at the moment. Um, and uh, and I think until there is there is a change there, then you know you can you continue to see those companies act the way that they want to. Um, but I do, you know, I think look even. I've been closely following what's been happening in Australia with the ACCC's moves there to try and, um, uh, you know, I guess effectively extort a levy from Facebook and Google um, based on the amount of news that has helped build those businesses to put back into the media industry, the news media industry there. And um, I think both Google and Facebook have really started to show their fangs about that once it started to get close to the wire. You know, there's always a lot of, you know, nice sort of initiatives about Facebook funding some news or contributing some, you know, a fund for this or that. But really, when the chips are down, um, there's going to be a really ugly fight there. It'll be interesting to watch how the Australian government responds to that. But Facebook's recent... um, you know, view that they can do without news on their platform. They don't need it to operate. Um, you may well be may well be the case, but to me, that leads to an even more wild west um, environment there, where without any good quality, um, accurate information uh, interspersed among, you know, who knows what anti-vax, you know, five G, um, uh, you know white supremacist, all, all sorts of stuff, it's going to become a real morass. Um, I can't see that being being good for their business or, or good for society either when so many people uh, spend their, their sort of days absorbing information from there. Mm. Um, well, we're well over time and um, <laughs> you've got a lot to do, so I'll let you go. But um, congratulations on the purchase and thanks so much for, for making time for me, Sinead. Thanks, Duncan. My pleasure. Thanks. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. 
Huge thanks to Omedia for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.